educators have a huge fear of the three words stereotypical, offensive and tokenistic, right? That's they are they are really scared of doing the wrong thing and offending someone. And I think part of that is because there is so much conflicting advice out there about what is best practice and what is okay. And part of that is because um, of the diverse the, the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples that, you know, um, there are many of us and we see ourselves as being our own peoples, our own countries, in our own right, with our own languages, our own laws, our own spirituality. Valuing Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures is one of the guiding principles of the National Quality Framework. However, engaging with Indigenous perspectives can be a daunting prospect for many services. Why is it so important for educators and services to understand Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander ways of knowing and being? Where can they start? And what does the work in the first five years mean for broader advocacy? I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is the Early Education Show, a fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. This episode, we're joined by Jessica Staines. Jessica is a Wiradjuri woman and early childhood teacher. She has worked in early childhood for over 10 years in both urban and rural services and formed her consultancy business, The Koori Curriculum, to support the early childhood sector to create culturally safe services for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and families. My background is that I'm a Wiradjuri woman, so my father's family is originally from Molong and Parks in New South Wales, but he grew up in Sydney and so did I um, on Gadigal country. And my mum, um, Debbie, is the head teacher of child studies at Petish and Tafe. So quite early on, I think I was born into early childhood, surrounded by early childhood educators and that sounds hard yeah I thought it no, sounded I think beautiful I thought it sounded wonderful yeah Lisa's um, terrified so yeah I guess mum was the director um for Marrickville Council Centres for a really long time and then that's where I first started working in early childhood as well and back then I think I was 16 or 17 and we were known um as the untrained child care assistants and then slowly I did my uh, Cert 3 and then diploma and then went on and did um, teaching whilst all the time working in, in early childhood and travelling around um, in lots of different service types and providers. For the first part of my career, it was mainly working not-for-profit services and I eventually found myself working with KU and um, in part of their Aboriginal programs team there. So that was the very beginning of my early childhood life like started all the way back from when I was born probably we could charitably describe it as like a very very long unpaid traineeship yes (laughs) that's right I'm like so do I say when I started working from when I was starting to get paid or when we were just there constantly all the time before and after school school holidays the whole bit we were always there Mm. (laughs) and I think probably where most people have heard of you Jess um, is your work with uh, your your consultancy organisation, the Koori Curriculum. I know I was really fortunate to work with you uh, earlier in the year when you came in and and presented uh, at the the conference uh, Northside put on in Canberra. So why don't you uh, tell us a bit about that work? 
So the Koori curriculum started about six years ago and it, it really just sort of started um, out of the blue, I guess. There was just a lot of educators that I was seeing mainly on through social media that were really struggling to include Aboriginal perspectives in their program. And so I sort of started doing it on the side and then realised that there was this huge need within our profession of educators that were desperately trying to connect with their local community and to support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families accessing their services, but just didn't know how to start and were really worried about being um, stereotypical and tokenistic. So we started the Koori curriculum and it, it, originally it was just doing one night per week and lots of Saturdays and then just more and more so um, we've gotten busier as time has gone gone on. So we offer just a series of different professional development um, works, uh, workshops. And we also have an online Facebook group, which is called the Koori Curriculum Educator Community, where um, educators can ask questions or share ideas in their program. And I try and respond. But what was happening is that we're turning into a bit of a dear diary posting thing on our emails, just all these people that were desperately needing help. And now they've sort of rallied around each other and have started this little community online. So yeah, that's how the Koori curriculum started and is forever evolving and being, yeah. Fantastic. And in thinking about, um, you, you talked there about how you began and that need that there was, um, people were expressing that need. So why do you feel it's so important for educators to engage with um, Indigenous perspectives? Mm. It's hard. I think um, it, there's lots of reasons why it's important that educators engage with Aboriginal perspectives in their program. And I think one of them is that, you know, we're teaching on Aboriginal land. So sometimes I meet educators and I meet families and community members that will start to say, well, what about our culture? What about us? Why is there such a focus on Aboriginal perspectives in the program? And I think for most Aboriginal people, we don't believe that our culture is any more or less important than anybody else's. Like we were denied our culture for a very long time, especially people of my father's generation were denied their, their language and their basic human rights. And I think um, we would never deny anybody else theirs. And I think it's not about one or the other, but the main reason is, is that it's about respect for this country's First Nations peoples. Um, and it's about reconciliation. So I think, there, there is definitely room for both, not one or the other, but I think educators really do need to start with that why, and there are two separate whys. So there is why is it important for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, and then there is why is this work important if you have no Aboriginal children attending your service. And I think the why for Aboriginal children particularly, it does, you know, connect directly to closing the gap work. So we know that for Aboriginal children there, or for Aboriginal people, that we are on par with non-Indigenous Australians when we receive a tertiary level education. So we know that that is the key to success. And um, we know that all good things begin with early childhood, That because when we want that smooth transition from early childhood into primary school, particularly for Aboriginal families, we look at the the whole family unit and how we can best support that family with their transition because when we want what's best for the child we want what's best for that whole family and when we look at the statistics of um, participation rates of aboriginal children accessing early learning services they're quite low 
And when we ask our families why this is, many people would think that it's because of cost or it's because of transport issues. But the main reason is because they believe um, early learning services, particularly mainstream early learning services, are not culturally safe. So mm. that, that you know, our work has to begin there. And I think that's why I always say, you know, for those of you that have reconciliation action plans, one of the actions is to fly the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flag. But if you don't understand the why, why that is important, it just sounds like a big fat waste of time and money. But when we ask our families, what are the signals and symbols that you look for to tell if an early learning service is culturally safe? And Dr. Sue Atkinson did a whole heap of research on this through her PhD. The number one thing that most Aboriginal families will voice and say is that they look for the Aboriginal flag and that is the, the main sign of respect. So sometimes it's those small things that that mean the most, but it's about understanding why those things are important. And for services, sorry, yes, you know, no, I was going on tan, massive tangent. Yeah, I know. I, anyway. Something I was going to ask, and I know you're about yeah. to move into um, talking about when you don't have Aboriginal children yeah. in, in your service. I thought that um, point about the flag is it's about symbolism, isn't it? There that that's attracting people to the centre. But something I was going to ask, which I don't want to take you off on another tangent. Um, it's something that always comes up for me is the use of the words Aboriginal or Indigenous. Yeah. And there's, I know there's a bit of toing and froing about that. And so I, I thought I'd just ask you that because I, I may have inadvertently said Indigenous perspectives and you've responded to me with Aboriginal. I'm just interested in, in that difference there. Look, I, I swap between them as well myself. And that is just because it, there's no... Um, there's no universal answer to that. And it's about the protocols of your community where you are. So the protocols of the inner west of Sydney, which is where I am, our protocols state that when we refer to um, First Nations peoples in this area, that we refer to them as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. You must always say both. Um, the struggle is for me is that I'm an Aboriginal person. I'm not a Torres Strait Islander person. I don't assume to speak on behalf of all Aboriginal people, but I definitely... I know very little about Torres Strait Islander culture, so I try not to voice um, my opinions and perspectives because they're not informed ones by by any extent when talking about Torres Strait Islander peoples. But other um, communities prefer the word Indigenous. Some communities, especially in the Northern Territory, only say Aboriginal. They don't acknowledge Torres Strait Islander. So it, it is a community-to-community community sort of thing. So it's about... Um, checking in with your local, either your local Aboriginal Lands Council um, or your local, it, it's, you know, it's all state-based really, but um, who that, that point of contact person is for you. In my community, we have two Aboriginal liaison officers at our local council that, that have a reference group and have put together this protocols document. So, yeah. Oh, sorry, Lisa, I know yep. I, I cut you off, Jess, because you're going to talk about why it's important for educators um, to engage, even if they don't have children who are Aboriginal children right, in the centre. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. That's okay. So even, um, I guess, from what we said before, that, you know, we're teaching on Aboriginal land, but the other reason, aside from that, I, I think it has very much to do with the anti-bias goals and the anti-bias curriculum. So we have four anti-bias goals, and that the first one is that children have a a strong sense of self and identity and that they're proud and secure in who they are and they have a strong sense um, of self and healthy self-esteem. And the second is that children have a respect for diversity. I think in early childhood, um, we, 
we are programmed almost to try and find connections with children to say that, you know, we might have different coloured skin and different coloured eyes and different hair and different types of families, but we're all the same on the inside. And I think that that sameness is really redundant. It's not about how we are the same. It's about how we are different and really seeing diversity as a strength um, and a skill. And even if all the children are homogenous in an early learning centre, the same cultural background, same language, same religion, same socioeconomic, all of those things, that is not the reality of broader Australian society. So in order for them to thrive, they need to have um, a healthy respect for diversity and see that as the strength and really value it for what it is. And the third is that children need to be able to recognise unfairness. What does that look like? What does it feel like? And the fourth is to take action against that um, and to stand up to be advocates. Um, and there are lots of examples of how that is in unfolding in early childhood and that, that real respect for diversity of all the, the multicultural um, you know, identities that reside within our country. So, and inclusive of that is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Thank you. So one of the things that you spoke about earlier was those kind of pleas in Facebook groups, you know, how do I do this or what do I do or am I doing it wrong? What do you think are the biggest barriers that stop people from engaging or introducing, you know, issues around Aboriginality and Torres Strait Islanders? Educators have a huge fear of the three words, stereotypical, offensive and tokenistic, right? That's, they, are, they are really scared of doing the wrong thing and offending someone. And I think part of that is because there is so much conflicting advice out there about what is best practice and what is okay. And part of that is because um, of the diverse... The, the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples that, you know, um, there are many of us and we see ourselves as being our own peoples, our own countries in our own right, with our own languages, our own laws, our own spirituality. The problem is, is that uh, sometimes in early childhood, we can become very local centric where we only focus on um, the, the um, cultural history of our local Aboriginal mob or nation. And even, I think that's important, but the Aboriginal children that are in your classroom, they may not be from that area. And that respect for diversity means to show the diversity of Aboriginal peoples as well. Um, I think that most people start with what is stereotypical. Like for me personally, knowing about your culture and knowing how to translate that into an early childhood context are two very separate things. So I started with cotton bud painting with red, black and yellow paint and making bush tucker and um, reading Dreamtime stories and all of those things. And nobody, I mean, it was before the birth of social media, but nobody was saying, you know, that that was offensive or, you know, um, hurting anybody. And I think we need to be kind to ourselves. We need to feel the courage to start and then have ongoing learning and reflective practice to build from there. Um, and were those experiences stereotypical absolutely they were they were very stereotypical but were they offensive or were they tokenistic probably not I mean tokenistic means that you're making a token gesture that you really don't intrinsically value the importance of what you're doing you're doing it because you've been told to do it so I think so long as you understand why you were doing what you were doing um, 
you, that that's an that's an okay place to start. That genuine place of wanting to know more and just wanting to be a better listener, rather than um, thinking that we've we've got it right the first time round, which is you know not true with anything we do in early childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good point, Jess. One of the things I remember from um, <clears throat> your presentation was that idea is um, it's it's not necessarily the outcome, but it's the intent behind it so if people are coming from a place of wanting to learn and and, and knowledge and grow and the advice there is it maybe don't necessarily post your first you know investigations in this area on social media it might be good to you know look for a critical friend or look for someone who can actually you know have those conversations i don't know if social media is the best forum for positive critical feedback is it necessarily no no it's terrible we always say don't read the don't read the comments um but yeah, the, the Koori Curriculum Educator community is very supportive and, um, you know, the educators that are there, we all know that people have different starting places and as long as people that are posting are open to the feedback and as long as the feedback is given respectfully, they can stay in the group. If not, then I boot them out pretty quickly. So, but, you know, I think the people that are there um, share the same philosophical beliefs, but I think the bigger the, you know, um, social media group is, the it lessens the ability of admins to be able to control it and create safe environments, I guess. But, yeah, it's hard. But critical friends are good if you can find a good one, for sure. So how have you seen um, services or educators kind of overcome those barriers and and start to, to do work in this area? A lot of educators that I work with, they start through registering with Narragunawali, which is through Reconciliation Australia, and they develop um, a reconciliation action plan or what we call a wrap. It's pretty good at highlighting what your strengths are and um, identifying, you know, your foundation of where you're beginning and then showcasing the steps of where you should then start to move towards. Um, Also, I think... I I always suggest to educators to really attend local Aboriginal community events as much as possible. So being in NAIDOC week, rather than focusing on experiences that we do in the classroom, I try really strongly to advocate and support educators to go and attend a NAIDOC community event where they go to language workshops or art workshops or dancing workshops or they just learn to to be and to to listen. and to, to collect information, almost developing a bit of a stakeholders list and starting to work out who is who in the community and what your local contacts and resources are that are available to you. Because there's no, it's not blanketed, it's going to be specific from every community that you're in. And I think it's this idea, and I know that we were going to discuss it as we went through this evening, but it's that idea of you know not necessarily being culturally competent. You know, we're never going to be culturally competent because I'm not even competent in my own culture because culture is fluid, it's not fixed, but it's about being culturally confident that you know where to go, who to ask, how to start, what is respectful, what are the protocols. Um, and instead of, you know, bombarding the first Aboriginal person you ever meet with a list of questions that you've been dying to, to get answered, it's just about building a relationship that's based on reciprocity um, and that that's about a genuine rapport and and being rather than you know can you answer my questionnaire of you know things that I need to know for my program. Can you expand a bit on that um, concept of cultural competency because this is something when the early years learning framework first came into being it was a, an area that 
people struggled with. And I know that um, in in the position of being involved in professional development around the early years learning framework, it really was quite a challenge. So if you could just expand on that, that would be fantastic. Um, I think cultural competency, it almost gives this sense of entitlement to knowledge about somebody's culture. And in even for Aboriginal people, when we go through law, questioning is not necessarily something that um, is, well, at least in our culture anyway, it's not something that was encouraged. So you could ask the same question three times and be ignored. And we learnt this, we thought uncle was hard of hearing, but um, just turns out we were being nosy and rude. Um, so we're told information at a certain time when our elders and law people, men and women, believe that we're ready to be told that information. And, and it's often the case you'll see it in galleries where the artists will share a bit of the story of their artwork that's on display, but there's a whole heap of stuff that will never be revealed um, to the public or shared openly. You also see it with the use of our symbols. They're symbols that are used to share information and symbols that are used to protect information. Uh, I think a lot of Aboriginal people feel that for a long time we've been researched and studied and um, our culture has been stripped and taken away. And our culture is, for us, culture is a lifeline for Aboriginal people and it's not something that um, we need to, to, to give away. Um, and I think there's a lot of trust issues that go with that, you know, why are people asking the things that they're asking, what are they going to do with that information, um, that how are they going to share it, how are they going to embed it into their practice. And it really does just take time. And I think even for Aboriginal people when we go through law, like my youngest brother has been going through law since the day he was born, he's still 24 and he's he still wears um, children's ochre because he's not yet considered a man. So he, he's not culturally competent either, um, and, it's, and it's our culture. We'll be right back. Are you listening to our Exploring the NQS series? If you're a supporter of the show on Patreon, you're not only helping to keep the show going, you'll also get access to an extra podcast where I explore every element of the National Quality Standard one at a time. It's a great way to get yourself up to speed with the NQS, uh, consider different perspectives and grow your own professional development. Each episode is only 15 minutes and we've just finished Quality Area 4 Staffing Arrangements. Just head to earlyeducationshow.com and click support the show in the menu to sign up and start listening for as little as $1 a month. With more than 100 episodes under our belt, we're now turning to our wonderful listeners for ideas and topics for future episodes. If you're doing something amazing in the sector, know someone who is, or really just want to hear us tackle a particular sector issue, just head to earlyeducationshow.com and click pitch an idea. All right, back to the show. It's still, it's so challenging, isn't it? To this. Yeah these concepts are laid into something and then really that it needs almost like a year or more of um, professional development to to grasp it and understand understand all the different nuances of it as well so in thinking about that as well what are the um, thinking about uh, cultural perspectives and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander matters within qualifications how do you think this should be considered in qualifications like the Cert 3, the Diploma and um, the Bachelor and maybe your personal experience of that as well. <laughs> it's really tricky. Um, so I have to be careful with how I answer this one. Um, no. <laughs> I think 
that there's a lot of training packages that teachers don't get the hours that they need to teach um, to the degree and the standard that they should be able to teach. That a lot of the time that, um, you know, it, it's a ticker box approach and nobody hates that more than the teachers themselves. There's a lot of things that I hate about our training packages. Um, I don't believe that the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander unit should be tacked on and separate to everything else that happens at TAFE um, because we don't tack it and sep separate it from our curriculum. So it should be embedded when we're talking about care for babies. How can we embed an Aboriginal perspective in that? When we're talking about families, the family unit, how can we include an Aboriginal perspective of that? Um, you know, when we're looking at you know, programming and planning, you know, are we teaching Aboriginal pedagogies like the eight ways of learning? So it shouldn't be seen as a separate tacked on unit. It definitely shouldn't be seen as an optional extra elective. I think there's a lot more focus recently on the, um, the competencies of TAFE teachers. And I know even as an Aboriginal person, when I wanted to start teaching at TAFE, the first thing I did is I went down to Eora TAFE and spoke to um, Danielle Londe, who was there at the time in Dallas, and got permission to, to teach the unit. Um, and being endorsed by community is really important. There are a lot of non-Indigenous people that are teaching um, Aboriginal perspectives and uh, well, teaching the Aboriginal unit, I should say, at, various RTOs and I don't think that that should be the case but I also don't think that there's enough Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander you know teachers and trainers that have their cert for so it's a bit of a, a problem. Um, yeah, there's a tension there isn't there in terms of of get, getting it actually into the those uh, different curriculums and into the packages but then who is teaching it and as you say is it embedded throughout and how does that happen it's very very complex for sure and are they competent you yeah. know and and I think in a lot of tastes I mean how they interpret the unit of competency into practice and how they put that into workplace assessments and so forth do those teachers have a firm understanding of what embedding Aboriginal perspectives in early childhood curriculums looks like I, I just don't know I, I just think there's lots and lots of problems with the unit at RTOs, heaps, yeah. Mm. I think it must also be just in, edu you know, in educators or well, teachers' defences, a lot of your students are coming into threes or diplomas or even university courses with much differing understandings of from their own backgrounds, et cetera, so... Yeah. You'll get some people that will start off and they'll know quite a bit about Aboriginal issues and you'll get other people that have never even thought of what it means to be living in a country that was you know, colonised. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a whole heap of international students and sometimes they can relate better to Aboriginal, um, the Aboriginal unit than, you know, 
um, white Australians can that are in the classroom because they've been marginalised and discriminated against and invaded and, you know, they've come from countries that, you know, they, what happens here in Australia is not a unique story. So they, they can share and they can empathise with all of that. They can they understand the intergenerational trauma and um, th those types of practices. So they, they sometimes can get it on a different level. But at the same time, you know, when I meet educators, when I do the training and I ask them, you know, put your hand up if you think that, um, you had a good education on Australia's black history and people will normally say to me, oh, well, we watched the, the rabbit proof fence. You know, <laughs> that, 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 that's about it. You know, great movie, but what it, what it still does is that if that's all that happens, you know, it alludes to this fact that all of these injustices, all of these policies and acts and so forth, that it all ended in 1969 at the end of the Protectorate Act. Oh, yeah, but, we're good now. We're you know, good. Yeah, you know, that's right. <laughs> You know, and then you get people that say, why don't you just get over it? You know, all of that sort of stuff. You know, it just, no idea about today's current affairs of um, Aboriginal people and, and what's happening now. Well, that's probably mm. a perfect segue to, to, to my question. Um, one of the things I think a lot about is um, someone who doesn't work directly with children anymore and works in a sort of policy advocacy role. And I think we've had a lot of this conversation, Jess, has been, I think, from sort of first principles, sort of starting engaging at an educator service level with um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspectives. But I've often thought that it, that that's hard to separate out from the uh, the broader, I guess, advocacy um, uh you know, sort of more fight around, you know, the, the current lived experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, particularly children. But if we look at things like um, the, the uh, care and protection rates and, and, the, and youth criminal justice system and out-of-home care system, we know that Indigenous children are significantly overrepresented in those systems. Um, I, sw I swear I'm coming to a question. This is my, this is, this is the way I do it. I ask, a, I ask, I, I read a whole paragraph and then I ask a question. Do you, do you think we can, or do you, I guess the direct question is, do you think educators and non-Indigenous educators, I guess like myself, have a responsibility to engage at that level as well? Yes, I think. <laughs> I love that. To know. <laughs> yes. I think it's a great super answer, yes. Yeah. I, look, I think advocacy isn't necessarily, you know, marching in protest or chaining yourself to a tree. It's about sharing your knowledge with one other person, you know, going home and having a conversation with your wife or your husband and, you know, talking to your children, talking to the families of the children at your service, talking to the educators at your service because, you know, Aboriginal people today, we still don't have a voice. We're still being silenced. We're still not um, present enough in mainstream media or if we are, it's always the bad, the mad and the sad. You know, hmm. there's you know, underrepresented and people, the, most of the time when I give them the hard truths about statistics and the training, they have no idea. And then they, you know, they get white guilt and all the rest of it. And I just think, you know, it's not about, it's not, it's not your fault. You are not responsible. You don't know what you don't know. But once you do know, you have an ethical responsibility to do something about it. Um, it's not about, you know, we don't need people feeling sad and sorry for us. We need people to be just as angry about it as us um, and to, to share what they know with somebody else so um there's you know empathy and sympathy and you know people know what to do when it's time to vote you know they give their votes to the right party like it's all of those things that that matter <laughs> at the end of the day yeah yeah i think that's that's fantastic um jess and look and i obviously completely agree with that and i think one of the the big challenges that educators um you know are struggling at, at those sort of first principle steps maybe as well but are also um you know struggling in their own lives for a whole variety of things as well but 
um, one of the things that I've tried to sort of um, encourage with people is that um, exactly as all those things you said, but even just knowing what the situation is, you're right, the amount of people who just don't understand that that's the current situation and either have a sense that things have probably improved or have a really um, unfortunate view that maybe, you know, Indigenous people even get more than non-Indigenous non people, which is a very long, you know, lots of long oh, conversations. Oh, we get everything for free. Everything for Trust free. Me, um, that's why oh. I'm looking for a house at the moment, by the way. Real estate <laughs> they've got a free house for me. I'm willing and waiting. <laughs> yeah, um, willing and I wait. always find a good way to deal with that, Liam, is just to have one or two questions, you know, up my sleeve that I ask people at certain times. Like, do you know what the average age of death is for an Aboriginal person in Australia or do you know, you know, what proportion of Aboriginal children under five are in early education and care services? Don't ask me to give either stat right now. But when you ask those kind of questions, sometimes they really shock people into realising how little they actually know about, you know, about these issues. Yeah, for sure. So something that um, Dr. Red Ruby Scarlett and I have recently developed through the Aboriginal Early Childhood Collective is a trivia game, which does exactly that. So it's looking at the statistics, the facts and figures, um, and it's just a way that we hope, you know, it's really, really cheap, inexpensive, you know, <laughs> trivia game. Maybe not our best product that we've ever made, but anyway. And it... Um, but what it does is that it's something that you can use at a staff meeting to start a conversation with educators and talk about, you know, what we think we know and challenging it in a really safe space um, to start, you know, lifting the lifting the blinkers off and seeing what it is. I mean, like just a simple fact that I always share, which always shocks people, that in my state, so in New South Wales, one in six Aboriginal children have been removed from their families. And those numbers are 100 times higher than what they ever were during the times of the stolen generation. Aboriginal children are 11 times more likely to be removed from their families than any other child in Australia. And that Aboriginal children in our state are more likely to end up in jail than what they are to finish high school. Like those are our current yeah. facts and figures, you know. Like and that, that that's the state. That's the yeah. same foundation. And it is, that's right. And, and once you've got that foundation, Jess, how do you then um, focus on the, like, coming from a strengths model as well? Because I think um, then that gives the, in some ways, the perspective that there's where are the strengths? That's and, right. And you definitely don't want that helplessness feeling. It's not yeah. about saying, wow, that's really sad and that's terrible and I feel bad about it. Like, be angry. You know, we're angry. Be angry. Like, that's how you should feel because then, you know, what tends to happen if you look at Aboriginal perspectives like a project, like you're doing munch and move or something, you sort of do it for a month and it sort of slips to the side, then up comes reconciliation week next year and you're back on again till NAIDOC and then it's back off again. But if it makes you angry and you intrinsically understand the importance of it, like I said, the key to success is for Aboriginal children uh, for Aboriginal people to receive a tertiary level education and for them to receive that tertiary level education, they have, to, they have to attend early learning services. That is a must. So making sure that you're culturally safe, making sure you're out in community and, and building those relationships so community understand that you're safe, looking at initiatives and programs and working out the barriers um, that are stopping families from accessing and get them in the door. That, that, that essentially is what has to happen. Mm. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Mm. Mm. Indeed. 
Do I sound so... like an angry person? Sorry. <laughs> no, no, not at don't, all. <laughs> don't, don't, don't misunderstand anger with passion, but frustration maybe. I don't know. Anyway. Um, no, I don't, I don't think you're sounding in that way at all. I, I think that it's just looking at the facts and, and working from, from that foundation, definitely. I'm not sure what other response there is, but anger and frustration to those statistics you've mentioned, Jess, but um, yeah. Yeah. The 26th of January every year is really important. You know, like we talk about changing the date all the time, but a lot of Aboriginal people actually want the date to stay the same because it's a date of protest where you'll see in a lot of um, capital cities there's marches that take place. So the one that takes place in Sydney every year, um, it used to start from the block in Redfern, but because of all the redevelopments that are occurring there, which is another story for another time, it now leaves from Hyde Park in the city and finishes at Victoria Park. Um, they walk up Main uh, George Street. So this year we had 50,000 people that were walking in protest and it's to shed light on, you know, the injustices and issues. So, you know, come and, you know, stand together in solidarity with, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And, and Jess, the there's something similar in every state, isn't there? Absolutely. Given there's that one that we're a national there. podcast. Yeah, Fed Square in Melbourne I know definitely does does one as well. Um, I can find some dates and send them to you, but every every state and territory does have a protest of some description, normally on the 26th of January. And that's why, you know, Aboriginal people are saying that they want the date to be changed because from 1838 or something, that the 26th of January has always been a day of protest, right? Mm. Even before the states federated to become Australia in 1901 even before the first Australia Day, which came decades and decades later. So um, the 26th of January has always been a day of mourning and protest for Aboriginal people. Yeah, so it's a no-brainer to change that, isn't it? No-brainer. Yeah. And just imagine if we made you the boss of everything for a minute and you were given that one hour with every single educator in Australia to, to change their views or their thoughts about Aboriginality or to change their practices in their services, what would you tell them in that one hour? Sorry, I thought that's what this was. No. We don't quite hour? have every educator. Our listening figures podcast. are a little yeah, lower than that, just a little. Just right. to get there. <laughs> so we'll just pretend that this is it, right? So for me, I think it's understanding your worldview and how your worldview is different to somebody else's. It's understanding... Uh, what privilege means, that privilege, the definition of privilege is that you don't consider something to be a problem because it doesn't affect you personally. So um, understanding that things like celebrations, significant dates, um, flying the flag, all of those things that you might not consider that to be an issue, but what, what unpacking what privilege means in an early learning context and in a professional early learning context, I think it's also about understanding the difference between equality and equity, that it's not about everybody getting the same, but it's about everybody getting what they need to thrive. And, um, you know, it's not, and not painting everybody with the same brush. So not all Aboriginal children need the same things from one another. So meeting people on an individual basis and looking at them from, from what they need. So inclusion means everybody, not 99% means everyone. Hmm. 
yeah, I don't know. That that would be elaborated in my one hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll bring you back for that one hour another time. But um, okay. I think that would be a great way to spend it. Well, um, Jess, we really appreciate that the time you've taken for um to for one of our annoying night records. Um, this this episode will be out just as NADOC week is is starting. Um, so it should be Friday as people are listening to this. And I think um I was having lots of discussions with with people on Northside today about the um uh, about the the need that you know. Just, just, just engaging with Indigenous perspectives for one week because it's a special week. It's Reconciliation Week or NADOC Week. You know, sort of getting everything out and then putting it back at the end of the week isn't okay. But um, it, it can be used, I think, as a starting point for people who are going. Do you know what? I'm really going to start thinking about these issues and start thinking about how we're going to engage with this long term. So, um, as we sort of, you know, we, we we really get into NADOC Week. Do you have, you know, any advice or how, you know, what's one thing you maybe suggest that educators and services, if they're going to use this as the springboard to start, what what do you think they should do? Uh, I think focus less on curriculum and in the classroom and think more about um, outside the classroom, your professional learning as a team and out in your community. So jump onto the NADOC website, which is just www.nadoc.org.au and put in your postcode and see what local um, events are happening near you and try and get out on the weekend or get some release time off the floor (laughs) if you can. Um, And... (laughs) And attend some community events and collect, uh, connect with local community. You could also unpack what that theme, voice, treaty, truth means. Um, understand the difference between a country that was invaded and a country that was colonised, which is one of the main differences between Australia and New Zealand, um, what that means today. And, yeah, you can listen to Paul Kelly's song, From Little Things, Big Things Grow. Um and that's a good starting place as a as a staff team to sit around and and listen to some music and talk about what the what the theme means together. I'd probably start start there. Yeah. Wonderful. Some great advice there. The the other bit of advice I might add here is I think one of the most recent um, gifts from Aboriginal Australia to non. Aboriginal Australia was the uh, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which isn't long. Yeah. It's about sort of only um, five hundred words, I think, isn't it? And is uh, just you know beautiful in the way it sort of outlines really clearly and pretty some pretty some pretty simple and I, w- I would have thought uh, obvious uh, demands of us that somehow we couldn't even get our heads around to say yes to that. But um, I actually think my my feeling is I think a lot of Australia is actually behind that statement. It's just probably the politicians that for some reason are telling it. But I think that's something I think you can pretty easily share with teams. I know we've done that um, here at North, Northside and that's probably another great starting point. Yeah. And I think, like, if you're looking for something to do in the classroom, an episode that Red and I worked on together for Play School is Coming to Air, which is their Acknowledgement of Country episode. Um, So that goes to air next Monday at 9am on ABC if you'd like to watch that Play School episode. And that talks about how you can start, shows lots of different examples of how you can do Acknowledgement of Country with children. So that's a bit of a special thing that's happening as well when they're... um, launching their new play school toy which is Kaya um, a little Aboriginal doll toy that will now be a permanent cast member on play school so that's pretty I I was wondering why it had taken play school so long to get to that point Mm. well they had Dan so Dan Dan is an Aboriginal doll that's been on play school for a long time he's one of the dolls that um, there's Mika, another doll that's sort of like plasticky, and often you'll see them doing, you know, washing activities and so forth with Dan. But Dan sort of doesn't have a very much of a backstory, 
And we've sort of said, well, that's sort of similar to a lot of Aboriginal people that are displaced and Hmm. not sure where they've come from. But being an Australian, you know, TV show, that they really should have more than one Aboriginal cast member with their toys. So Kaya's a really good um, addition to that and very different to Dan. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting. Fantastic. How exciting you got to be on Play School, did you? Oh, no, I didn't get to be on Play School. Gosh. <laughs> but that, but I'm working my way up to it. I'm working my way up to it. You'll get there, no, Jess. No, I just yeah, – that's right. Probably read before me knowing her. But I think um, we you know, we just we just wrote the um, – helped write the script and um, we're the early childhood advisors on the, on for that series. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a much more important job than actually being on it. You reckon? talking it up (laughs) Uh, well Jess thank you so much for your time um, tonight we um, we, and we'll we'll include all the links to all the things you've um, you've mentioned today as well as as well as linking to um, to your work with the Koori curriculum but thanks so much for joining the early education show thanks very much for having me You have been listening to The Early Education Show. Thanks to our guest for this episode, Jessica Staines. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.